Hello everyone, my name is Anasul Sadag and this is Something About Everything. With me here today is Abdullah Dawood, the Executive Director of the Refugee Center and DevBlock Social Innovation Catalyst. Today we are going to talk about immigrants and refugees in Canada and how technology can play a role in integration. First off, thank you so much for taking the time, Abdullah. No problem, thanks a lot for having me on. Okay, to start off, can you tell me more about what you do? Sure. So, yeah, the Refugee Center and DevLock were uh, sister NPOs that we started in around 2013, but not officially until 2015. Um, what we did is that we studied the, the landscape of uh, service providers for uh, immigrants and refugees throughout Canada, and we kind of wanted to see where we can fill in the gaps and see what was working and what was not working. Um, so we operate on three main premises, uh, social integration, academic integration, and economic integration. Where academic integration fits in is uh, we wanted to promote higher education for refugees and immigrants. They all come in with, you know, a lot of good credentials and are actually very educated. But the problem is North America and Canada in general is they don't recognize uh, foreign education. So getting them into, you know, graduate degrees or uh, undergraduate degrees was one of our main goals. In uh, the province of Quebec where we operate, uh, we found that one of the obstacles or barriers was English proficiency examinations, such as IELTS or TOEFL, was not being offered to them anywhere. And that was a main prerequisite for all the universities. As soon as we offered that, uh, you know, our first class was 10, 15 students, and then around our second or third semester, we were around 200 students. That translated into admissions of 150 refugees into university within our first year, which is a very good metric. Then we pushed and want to tackle economic integration. So with economic integration, it was, it was a bit tougher. But what we did is that we found uh, what was the most in demand in the Montreal area as far as jobs are concerned. You know, aside from the basic uh, you know labor industry or what everyone uh, perceives as refugees and immigrants going into, we found that the tech industry was actually the most in demand. While it is booming, there's just not enough skilled workers for that industry. So it came to the point where uh, the demand was actually lowering the barrier of entry for these individuals to gain positions. So we started our own programming schools. Uh, we teach different programming languages and platforms. And from there, they actually gain some experience online and in industry and they're able to land internships and jobs in, in that specific field. Uh, we also pushed for uh, them to kind of bank on their entrepreneurial spirit and start their own businesses. Uh, we did that through the DevBlock Social Innovation Catalyst, which is just a fancy word for incubator. But we were able to, you know, give them new opportunities, uh, connect them to the right people in the industry, and really translate that uh, business mindset to a kind of a Canadian standard. And lastly is our social integration. We do that kind of organically. We decided to, with all our services and our classes, we offer them to the public uh, as a whole. So we have something called the 30-70 split or kind of like the 50-50 split where we ensure that at least 50% of the class are, you know, Canadian locals to kind of improve their social network. So, you know, the refugees and immigrants are in class and they're interacting with, you know, the local community in a way that they wouldn't do uh, on their own. And they're able to expand that social network, you know, for either employment or education or referral programs or start businesses together. And that's been a very fruitful uh, endeavor on our end and experience. And produced pretty good results. And that's it in a nutshell. I know I went on for a bit, but uh, that's it. 
Mm -mm. Uh, I have so many questions for you about what you just said. So let's work backwards. Uh, The first one, how well has the social integration been working? Like, have you seen Canadians and refugees interacting well? Are they like becoming friends? Are they sharing their experiences, stuff like that? Yeah, it works very, very well. And that's the thing. Uh, you know, Canada is, is pretty good at this. Uh, I think we have a very welcoming society. I think in general, the population has a very positive attitude towards immigration and refugees, uh, regardless of what the, the media presents. I think from our experience and even from our inbox and our emails, we get, you know, a bunch a day from Canadians wanting to, you know, do our mentorship program or participate in our classes or to aid refugees and immigrants in any way possible. So yeah, in, in those classes, actually, been, it's been pretty good. It wasn't, honestly, it wasn't planned. It's just something that happened organically. You know, we, we offer our service to everybody and then we saw, we kind of noticed like, okay, they're, you know, conversating with each other. Uh, they're making plans with each other. Um, we do all these social events and, you know, somehow it's, it's just, it's a very natural wave of integration uh, rather than, you know, forcing it upon them or you know, taking it to a museum or something like that. I think it's, it's, it's a, it kind of uh, paid off in dividends uh, for us. And it obviously didn't require much work. It just required having a, a classroom and a, an open door. Are you currently partnered with any organizations or like where do you get your data from? So, yeah, we, we, we partner with the government to an extent. We, the federal government, we, we work with the city of Montreal. We've worked with uh, Concordia University, McGill University. We're on a couple of different research projects with them as well. We collect our own internal data and, and measure that as to move forward. There's also uh, Immigration and Refugee and Citizenship Canada, which is the immigration branch of federal government. They have a, a large bank of open data that we've been, been using to kind of gather uh, the progression of refugees and immigrants in Canada. And how well are the refugees perceiving the tech education that you are giving them? Uh, it also d- it depends on age groups, and I'm not going to lie, it's not like a 60-year-old person is not going to come to our, our tech classes, but usually the young adults and, and people ranging up, you know, 40, 45 years old uh, are participating. They're very excited. But yeah, a big part of them coming here to Canada is to try new things, right? And to discover uh, Canada and what Canada needs. So if they see an opportunity to participate in that and also gain some sort of economic advantage, you know, they'll, they'll do whatever. And that's a kind of an underlying statement with most immigrants and migrants and refugees. They are very, very eager to do whatever is needed. You know, if they're not, uh, they're actually too eager. <laughs> and it's becoming a, it's becoming a problem for us. Like, for example, we have a lot of the students we admit, they're like, okay, but I can take, you know, six, six courses a semester. Or can I take seven courses a semester to catch up or, you know, to do that? And we're like, no, actually, you know what? You should maybe start off as part time, take it easy and, and, and get acclimated first. So their ability or their willingness to, to participate, I think, is very inspirational. And I think that's something that's, you know, there across the board. It's something we can always rely on. Mm. That actually ties into my next question. I was going to ask you, what is a strength or something unique that you would say refugees bring? Not to be cheesy, but uh, I mean, Trudeau said diversity is a strength, right? Like it is a strength to be diverse and it's a, a strength to have a different set of diverse opinions, a different way of tackling different problems. A lot of these refugees who come in, like I said, are already very educated, which gives them an advantage because when they're coming and you know, redoing this work or trying to catch up, they actually perform very, very well because they're already very knowledgeable 
and they're applying a skill in a different language or applying a skill in a different environment. So those are things that you can fix quite easily uh, or get adapted to quite easily. But the knowledge base is there, and I think that's a huge advantage. You know, it takes us a lot of time to train individuals to become acclimated to a certain skill set or knowledge set. Um, these refugees and immigrants are already coming with that and just adapting it to you know Canadian culture and the Canadian environment. So since you are part of the daily operations of integration and assimilation of refugees, I want to get to some myth busting. Can you list out some myths about like immigration and refugees that you would like to debunk? I mean, where do we start? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, polling data that came out on Canadians' opinions of refugees. So Canadians are very sympathetic towards refugees and immigration in general. The majority of people who said no to, you know, expanding refugee intake or immigration intake, uh, which was actually not a very high percentage to begin with. I think it was around like uh, 30 or so, maybe less than 30, around 25 to 30%. A lot of them uh, put the reason as to why they wouldn't want to expand the program as to economic reasons, as they see them as an economic burden to Canada. Uh, but in reality, that's just not the case. Refugees are a very good investment. Uh, immigration is a very good investment because... Like I said, the turnover on their economic net positivity as far as them contributing in tax money or contributing in jobs and job creation even is so much higher than it is for us bringing them here. So, for example, a Canadian-born citizen, um, the government spends a tremendous amount of money on you, actually. Like the last calculation was around anywhere between ten to $15,000 per year since you're born to make sure that they're investing in you to become an economically positive person or valuable person to society. And you keep taking up until age 24. That's on average, 24 years until you start producing enough money to become economically positive for Canadian society as a whole. So the government spends, you know, uh, money on your health care, your community programs, your education, and it's everywhere from primary to even post-secondary by subsidizing your tuition. It's it's crazy. It's a crazy amount of money for immigrants you know, they, or refugees. They come here at that tender age of you know anywhere between uh, fifteen to to, to thirty five or forty, and they're they're already equipped. They they have everything. And they only need on average anywhere between three to six years to become economically positive. So if you look at the comparison, it's it's quite beneficial. Aside from that, they're they're also job creators. You know, they're they're very entrepreneurial. So if you look at the percentage of startups, and I'll just use refugees, for example. This is uh, data from the RCC that's uh, publicly available. The percentage of startups or new businesses that are started, so refugees are actually account for about almost 15%, whereas in Canadian-born citizens only account for 4.8. So it's almost triple the amount of private business owners in Canada and also triple the amount of job creators. So as far as economic positivity, that's one big myth that has to be tackled. Uh, the, n- the numbers are staggering. Even if you look at uh, their skill set, so uh, refugees aged between 25 to 54, a lot of them actually work or are employed in management or professional level uh, jobs. So over 50%, so we're talking about 53% of them are in management or professional level jobs. That's huge. And 33% of them are in apprenticeship jobs, so labor-intensive jobs, but you know, those are needed as well. And those are very successful, you know, kind of work or, or private businesses that, that operate. 
Um, so it's not just low skill jobs. Usually there's some sort of, uh, uh, you know, skill or talent they bring to the table. I mean, I can go on and on, but, uh, one, one of the ones that I found actually very entertaining, uh, so aside from the economic question, they also, uh, there's a social question. They're like, oh, but you know, how loyal are they to Canada? Do they see themselves as Canadian? Are they integrating or how do they identify? So refugees on average, I'm going to be that. So when, when pulled, their sense of belonging to Canada, or they call it a strong sense of belonging or identifying as Canadian, 95% of refugees identify as Canadian. Whereas 91% of Canadian born Canadians <laughs> identify as Canadian, right? So even on that metric, refugees perform very, very well. And so yeah, a lot of the criticism comes from a narrative of fear, right? Fear of unknown. And I'm, we're hoping that this data, this, this new information kind of changes the unknown into actual like numerical data that uh, something tangible that can take and see refugees as a valuable addition to society. And then it's been proven well. I mean, if you look at the about 50,000 uh, Syrian refugees that we took about three and a half years ago, they have an employment rate of 57%. Now, you might think 57% is low. But the Canadian average is 62%. And this is also taken into account, for example, stay-at-home uh, moms or dads. It takes into account that people who are too young to work. That's why the, the percentage is at uh, 57 and 62. So uh, they're almost on par with the Canadian average. And if you look at their unemployment rate, the unemployment rate is just below 9% for, for refugees, the, the main cohort that came in. And the unemployment rate for Canadians right now is a tad above 6%. So it's very, very, very close to each other. They're integrating, acclimating well economically. And if that's one of the main fears that we have to relieve, I think uh, we can do so quite easily. Well, these are many great points and they're all positive. I don't want to be pessimistic, but what are common problems that refugees face when it comes to integration? Yeah, I mean, it's not, a, it's not always going to be a smooth process, right? Like, I'm very positive, but like, there's work that goes into this. But I always say this, it's, it's a two-way street. Um, you have to understand the onus of responsibility is both on Canadians and refugees. So the refugee has an onus of responsibility to integrate in Canada, but the welcoming population also has an onus of responsibility to be welcoming. It's not, uh, if one of them doesn't work, if one of, the, if one of them doesn't participate, the whole thing doesn't work, right? So it's very contingent on how our civil society decides to welcome refugees. And one of the things refugees struggle with is they're here, but they're very alone, right? So, and there are some psychological issues that they go to, that they go through. I don't like to say PTSD because it's kind of very North American, but they do have, you know, these, these mental hurdles they have to overcome. And that can only happen once you remove them from isolation. So, while we do label them as refugees, refugees shouldn't be something as an isolating term. So while the refugees here, they, they need to, and that's what we do with our classes and why it was so successful, is the, the social networking. And that's something that's very difficult to achieve. And it, we don't want to refugees just to go to the areas or the neighborhoods where that, that identifies with their culture more reasonably, right? So they, they shouldn't be you know, moving straight to the part of town where only Syrians live, right? Because that's not going to help. Uh, what's going to help is if they're pushed into areas where they're uncomfortable and they become comfortable with it. And that's a tough hurdle uh, to kind of set straight because it's the easiest thing to do to, to go with what you're comfortable with, right? We, we came here and that's the, 
the first thing that we did when we when we came to Canada is like, okay, who's like me? Who speaks the same language as me? Uh, who do that's the person I'm going to talk to because that's what I'm the most comfortable with. Uh, and that's a very like naturistic or human thing to do. And we need to kind of overcome that to an extent. I don't know if that, that makes sense to you. <laughs> yeah, that really makes sense. Um, what are projects you are currently working on other than the ones you mentioned in the beginning? Um, yeah, so we also operate as a, like I said, like a tech incubator. So we push to solve social issues, particularly when it comes to migration with technology. And we do it so hand in hand with, you know, refugees and immigrants. Uh, one of the things that I'm sure you are aware of in the news was the uptake in asylum seeking in Canada recently due to uh, political decisions done by our, our southern neighbors. And uh, that caused kind of a big backlog and a lot of uncertainty for those asylum seekers. Also, there was a lot of what we don't like, we call crooked immigration. So crooked immigration lawyers, uh, where they were kind of soliciting these individuals and charging them a large amount of money to represent them in, in refugee court, which was, you know, not allowed or not necessary. So we developed uh, an artificial intelligence. It's a, it's a chatbot called Luna. It uh, conversates through text with uh, any asylum seeker or refugee claimant in their language of choice. It goes through a normal conversational flow, and from there it extracts the data from you that is necessary to pull out your asylum claim or refugee claim uh, back into English or French. So you can use it in Spanish, and it'll auto-populate the actual PDFs back in English and French and email it to you or store it in your phone privately. Uh, without collecting any identifying data, without storing it. So, so yeah, it was. Uh, it's proven to be very successful in our tests. We found that it saved uh, up to 83% of lawyers' times or of uh, the time taken by you know, social workers or consultants to actually help them fill out these forms, provided actually more accurate uh, data. So, for example, we did a lot of social engineering. A lot of the questions are open-ended. So one, one big question is uh, the basis of claims. So essentially, just ask why. You know, why are you here? And that's a very open-ended question. And when you're asking refugee claimants, well, they can go on and on and on. They'll talk about <laughs> entire political history. But the lawyers and especially judges are only looking for very specific things, right? So you know, why did you leave? What were the dates that you left? Did you try anything else? Who did you consult? All these type of things. So we worked with a, a lot of lawyers to socially engineer the questions that were needed to output the information that the judges and the lawyers were looking for. And that also provided for more accurate translations. I think our translations were up to 99% accurate, just because they were very concise questions with very concise answers. That, that was one big project we worked on that, that's currently being used. So yeah, the, the, the next project was uh, our pre-arrival uh, services uh, platform. So we created, and this is in beta testing now, but we created a social network or a social platform where Immigrants and refugees can gain services to acclimate and integrate faster before they even arrive to Canada. So refugees actually have a, people don't know this, they have anywhere between 18 to 24 months waiting period outside of Canada before they come here. And in those 18 to 24 months, what the government does, they do background checks, they do health checks, they inquire about them, they do interviews. And once they get accepted, it's, it's like I said, 18 to 24 months. So we wanted to take advantage of that time. So basically, they would go on, they would communicate with uh, refugees that already went through the process who currently live in Canada. They can fill in the blanks of what they're missing in order to achieve the goals here. We have a job data platform where, for example, if a refugee came from an oil 
and, and gas background. And, that, and that's a problem. So a lot of these would resettle, all these refugees would resettle based on cities because they knew someone that lived there, right? Uh, uh, they were like, okay, I'll go, I'll go to Toronto just because, you know, I have a relative in Toronto. I'll go to Montreal because a friend who went to Montreal. But it's not necessarily the best economic city for them just because their background could be better used in a different part of Canada and Canada is a large country. So we created a job posting platform and a, a, an algorithm that gives you all the vacancies based on industry in, in that particular city. So if you're a person who comes from an oil gas background and you have extensive experience in that, it would make more sense for you to live in a country like Edmonton or Calgary, right? It wouldn't make sense for you to go, you know, to London, Ontario, for example. So it, it's it shows them where they would be the most beneficial and where they have the best chances to utilize their experience, right? And, and and they have their own dashboard. They can customize it based on services needed. From that, we collect data and we can see which services are working out, which ones aren't, uh, which current government services are being provided that they aren't necessarily asking for or outdated or something that they're asking for that's not being provided at all. Uh, so it's a good way to learn and, and data is key. And there's just not enough data collection or allocation when it comes to refugees and immigrants uh, before they come to Canada, specifically the ones that we choose to come to Canada. So we found that to be very important. And the testing has been quite promising thus far. We hope to launch it in around May. Wow. I'm actually mind blown by the projects and ideas you're currently working on. It seems AI is not just a buzzword. It can actually do something useful. I want to switch gears now and ask you, on a personal level, what are things you would like to change in the refugee intake process? Uh, people don't believe this because the media doesn't really say it as much, but we have one of the most stringent immigration processes in the world and, and refugee processes in the world. We were very picky. Uh, we have a very strict process. It's one that's based on boxes and check marks, right? It's not based on anything else, kind of it's a void of kind of emotional attachment or situational attachment. So if you don't fit those categories, if you don't qualify. And that could be good technically and that could be good for bureaucracy, I guess, to make things a bit faster, that you have an automated process of box and checking. But it's not good holistically because immigration is evolving. The world's evolving. Uh, different things happen at different times. Situations are always changing. Uh, civil wars can occur at any given moment. People are persecuted for identities that they can't reveal in public. We have to take that into account in our process, and we really don't. So I don't know if you know this, but we have a, a private sponsorship program for refugees. So that basically means any person can put up a certain amount of money and privately sponsor a refugee to come to Canada. There's a set amount that we accept every year based on the province. Uh, they kind of dictate that number. But Canada's becoming too reliant on private sponsorship and not enough on public sponsorship. And that becomes problematic because when it goes to private sponsorship, it's not based on the refugees who are the most immediate danger, right? It's based on the refugees who have the most or or the biggest connection to Canada because the people who are going to privately sponsor refugees are going to be family members, right? Mm -hmm. Are going to be friends, are going to be people who, you know, went through that or, or have some sort of emotional connection to that area or to that individual. And that's the majority of private sponsorships. It's not based on the people who are in the most immediate danger. And that's where public sponsorship comes in. 
So now we're starting to see the numbers kind of change or favoring private sponsorship. And I don't think that should be something that we could, we should continue to build on. I think both numbers should increase for sure. Canada can take in a lot more than what it's taken in now, just because we're an extremely big country that, you know, we're actually also extremely rich and we also need a lot of people. So yeah, that, that's something that I would like to see change. And I'd like to see uh, a more positive outlook from government. Like, Government's very impacted or swayed by public opinion. And when public opinion becomes critical of these individuals, the, the, the government starts to shy away a little bit. While the liberal government has taken a, a good stance, I believe, on immigration and, and, and refugees, they've kind of quieted or kind of been a bit more muted recently because the, on the global uh, spectrum or global opinion of, of refugees and immigrants have kind of went down recently due to the rise of these right-wing parties, Canada hasn't been as vocal as before. And that's something I think we should kind of, we've taken a kind of a principled stance on this, and I think we should uh, continue holding on to our principles on, on that end. I think you unintentionally busted two myths right now. The first myth is that Canada has open borders and loose immigration and refugee processes. That is not true. Canada has very stringent and very strict uh, immigration and refugee processes. And the second myth that you debunked was the idea that all of the refugees coming in are getting and taking money out of the taxpayers' money, and that is not true. I actually did a quick fact check right now, and in the big surge of Syrian refugees that came in between 2015 and 2016, almost 42% were actually privately sponsored. So yeah, two myths debunked. (laughs) <laughs> even even the money that we do spend on them, it's a, it's a drop in the bucket. People always hear a number, right? So if I told you 100 million, right? I think that, that there was a Sean Star article that said uh, 124 million for the next five years, or next three years, sorry, because of the increase in asylum seekers and refugees. If you look at what we spend federally, 124 million spent over three or so years compared to our federal budget, which is around 174 billion or and 180 billion range. It's really nothing. I think we spend more on the Queen visiting Canada than we do on refugees to an extent, right? Um, and these are investments, right? These are things that produce returns. It's not 124 million that you're never going to see again. You're investing in individuals that have proven to become economically positive. You are going to get a return from them sooner or later. So that money will get back to you. A lot of people don't know what they said, that the, the publicly sponsored refugees also, a lot of them have to pay back their airfare. So the airfare that the, that the government spent on them to come here, they have to pay back. So even even some of the money that's already being spent on them is is kind of accounted for. It, it's, it is a very silly myth. It's uh, it's it's one that's kind of based more on fear mongering than really any data, any numbers. Okay, before I end the interview, I just want to ask you, how can our listeners help you at the refugee center or Dev Block? Um, any way possible, to be honest with you, like uh, we, we rely a lot on uh, the resources of the individual rather than kind of monetary gain. Um, so even if you have some sort of skill set or some sort of unique insight that, that you want to give, we're very happy. We, we actually love those. You can contact us at the refugeecenter.org. It's center the French way, so it's R-E. 
uh, not ER, and uh, devblock.ca, both of which you can contact us through the website, help out any way we can. If you're actually interested in the tech aspect of what we do, we hold annual hackathons every year. Our second hackathon was last November. We had around 300 participants. A lot of big names were there, SAP, uh, TD, uh, IBM. We had over 22 sponsors, and we actually pose actual issues or technological gaps in, in migration, immigration, and refugee uh, issues. And we pose them to the public to fix. So this past year, the RCC gave us uh, three problems that the government was facing. And we were able to solve them in just 24 hours. And they're actually being produced live as we speak uh, with government. So those are very impactful things or things that we can do that really have a footprint and uh, that's trackable. So if you want to participate in any way, shape or form, contact us. We're, we're very friendly. We'd be happy to, to hear from you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Abdullah. Yeah, before anyone helps you, I think you might want to change the spelling of center in your <laughs> website. <laughs> we're, we're Quebec-centric. We have to be loyal to, uh, to where we are. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you. It was very insightful. Thank you so much for your information. Awesome. Thank you so much, Anas. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And reach out to the Facebook page and let me know what you think in the comments below each episode. It would mean a lot to me. And of course, give me a good review on iTunes. That also helps a ton. So please do it if you can. And thank you for listening. <laughs>